Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Jesse Bartholomew, and this is part three of the Joseph Westbecker story. Now, just as a recap, in parts one and two, we talked about Joseph Westbecker and the standard gravure shooting. And we had to also talk about the working conditions at standard gravure. We talked about Joseph Westbecker, his early life, all the way up into the years right before the shooting. We also talked about the history of Prozac and its manufacturer, Eli Lilly. And so today we're kind of going to bring things full circle. Uh, We'll talk about the trial and what ultimately happened in this case. So there's one other element that I want to touch on a little bit more that I, I think I maybe mentioned in the previous episodes, but it's something that John Cornwell calls the cult of military style violence, the new war. And it's these lone wolf shooters who stockpile arsenals of weapons and commit these very senseless public crimes, uh, what we call shooting sprees, right? And we know this style of violence all too well now. These, uh, these public shootings are unfortunately very common. But in the 70s and 80s, it was a brand new concept. Uh, these things just, just didn't happen. Cornwell talks about another writer, uh, James William Gibson, who has written books on this paramilitary mass murder phenomenon. And he talks about how people were so frightened and angered by the horror of crimes like these that there had been little scope for critical analysis of what led to them. So are we really understanding why these men, and the vast majority are men, are committing these acts of violence? Why is this happening? And Gibson argues that a huge root cause of all of this violence in the workplace is um, just the the stress of of work and the bad conditions. And Westbecker's situation was not unique. Um, It wasn't an outlier. It was a, quote, uniquely documented instance of a rapidly increasing trend. So let's talk about that. In 1989, 696 Americans were recorded to have died in the workplace as a result of violence, which actually seems like a fairly low number if you look at the, you know, the pop, the total population. Um, in 1992, that number had creeped up, though, to 1,004, and 17% of workplace deaths were due to violence, and, and this next uh, statistic is, is really alarming to me. of women who died on the job were murder victims. 40%. Now, Cornwell does a great job documenting several other incidents similar to the Westbecker shooting, and it does really help put things into perspective, but we'd be here forever if I went through all of them with you. So I, I, again, encourage you to buy the book. It's called The Power to Harm. And so that it's just important to understand that um, violence breeds violence, I think, and that's what was happening at this time. And Wes Becker had been studying other these other early workplace shootings like this. Um, but labor experts claimed that in 1994, the year that the trial was supposed to start, there were 111,000 serious incidents in the U.S. workplace involving physical and emotional acts of violence. 
This could be physical assault, verbal abuse, intimidation, vandalism, threats, damage to personal property, sabotage, etc. So you pair that with withdrawal of job security, late payment of wages, incomplete wages, unsafe and stressful conditions, competition, unfair demotion, increased working hours, aggressive supervisors, uncaring managers, downsizing, inadequate medical and pension benefits, lack of break time, etc., etc., and you've got a recipe for disaster. And then HR departments are instructed to handle these things in a way that totally shifts the blame to the employee and takes no responsibility on behalf of the company. In fact, a lot of employees, like in Joe Westbecker's case, they have it worse if they do go to an HR person or a social worker or someone like that because it's not confidential and they end up getting treated worse. So, um, you know, we've, we've harped on this now. The working conditions at Standard Gravure were not good. Um, they were all working a ton of overtime. Uh, superior uh, people in, in higher-up positions were not nice to their employees. I mean, they were downright mean to their employees. Um, and what I won't get too far into today, but is also worth some consideration, is that the printing business, in particular, was under a lot of strain in that time period. Um, there was major competition, there were quick advancements in the technology, and so a ton of downsizing. So for example, at Standard Gravure, the workforce went from 600 people in the mid-80s to 80 workers by the end of the decade. I mean, that's, that's huge. That's stressful for everyone involved. So I just wanted to mention that aspect of this, but let's talk a little bit more about Wes Becker's last few years at his company before he took that leave of absence. So there was a situation in 1985, and I mentioned this at the very top of the episode. Workers were getting sick from the chemicals, these um, solvents in the ink and it down in the press. And Joe called them out. He was like, you know, I'm having to make frequent stops at the nurse's office for all this skin irritation. And so he was trying to get his coworkers to join him in suing Exxon, the manufacturer of the chemical. Um, and he, I mean, he was right about it. People were starting to pass out while they were working and they were experiencing all sorts of health issues, um, but nothing came of it. Uh, that year, he was also begging, and this is 1985, and he's begging his higher-ups to take him off that folder job. And um, other employees even testified that that job was becoming increasingly stressful, the most stressful, the worst job. In August of 85, he told the union president that he was manic-depressive and that, quote, medication helped but the pressure of the folder seems to overcome my medication. When I come in, I'm fairly calm, and then I begin to fall apart again, and I just really, really need to get off that folder. In July of 86, he was prescribed lithium, and Joe told his supervisors that this drug was blurring his vision, um, but worksheet records show that that didn't change anything because he was kept on the machine for 120 hours from August 17th to September 20th. 
He started seeing yet another doctor who prescribed him trofranil on top of the lithium. And this new doctor wrote a letter to Standard Gravure asking that his patient be taken off the folder. Nothing happened. Westbecker met with a caseworker from the Human Relations Commission in Louisville in May of 87. And he told this caseworker that his foreman was making fun of him for his mental illness. And so the caseworker was like, well, you know, you can file a complaint against the company for discrimination and unfair treatment. Um, and he did, and nothing happened. Coworkers recalled talking with Joe after that, and he, he was telling them that he had just gotten out of the hospital again. I mean, he was really not doing well, and he told Mike Shea this, and Mike Shea told him he had to keep working the folder or he'd be fired. Even after, Wes Becker had provided Shea with a list of other employees who could easily work the position, at least some of the time. Three weeks after that, Joe went to meet with Dr. Lee Coleman for the first time. Now, during his last few months at work, Joe Westbecker was described as reclusive and preoccupied with weapons. It's all he talked about was guns. In January of 88, he bought a pistol at Ray's gun shop. That same month, a foreman reported that Westbecker had threatened him with a gun. I don't know how you keep your job after that. In April of 88, Dr. Coleman was writing letters to the company advising that Westbecker should not be doing high-stress work and that his overtime needed to be limited to what he could handle, and in Coleman's opinion, that was 64 hours a week. Uh, his personal life was no better. In April and May of 88, Joe's son James exposed himself again multiple times in public and was sentenced to 90 days in jail. And this is just such a sad detail to me because it really, it kind of brings things full circle. Um, when Joe was just a little bit younger than, than the age that James is now, he was in jail and he was thinking about committing suicide. And now James, uh, his son James is in jail and talking about committing suicide. Uh, the next month, June was the first time that Dr. Coleman put Wes Becker on Prozac. And like I mentioned earlier, this lasted two days. And, and he, he did not like it, and Joe took himself off of the drug. Um, and his coworkers remember him talking in his last few days at work about bombing the building with a remote control plane. And on August 6th, Wes Becker worked his last day at Standard Gravure, and there could not have been more warning signs. So we'll talk about a few more details about that year that he was on leave before the shooting. So Dr. Coleman had changed Joe's diagnosis from bipolar to schizoaffective disorder. Joe had become really suspicious of everyone and very paranoid. He thought that Dr. Coleman was uh, hypnotizing him without his permission. He bought another gun in August of 88, and six weeks after that, he went to the Owen Funeral Home and paid $700 cash for his own cremation. And he deeded the house to Brenda. In October, he bought another gun. Um, and then in January of 89, he bought two more guns. And sheesh. He told a former co-worker that he bought those two, quote, in case he needed them for his bosses. 
And then in April of 89, he got a letter with the terms of his disability payment, and he was furious. He felt like he'd been cheated somehow. And so that's in the back of his mind. And in the front of his mind is that his son, James Westbecker, is still getting arrested over and over again for public exposure. And between doctors and medication, it was getting so expensive and so stressful. And Joe never lost faith in his son. He urged him to finish his classes at UofL. He was so concerned about James finishing college and, you know, people think that that's why he was so concerned about these disability payments is because that was going to be how he, he helped James finish college. And so towards the end of April 1989, Joe traded one AK-47 for another and he purchased 1,100 rounds of ammunition. And then in May, uh, he was taking 600 milligrams of lithium a day, plus trazodone, Restoril, and a tranquilizer called Halcyon. And he was also prescribed a muscle relaxer called Soma. And then one late night in July, he showed up at Standard Gravure to talk to the union president. And he brought the letter that he'd gotten about his disability payments, and he told the union president in front of a witness that he, quote, could come in and wipe the place out. The next day, the union president reported this to the vice president, Don McCall, or he, he says that he did. And he says that when he reported this, Don McCall laughed and shrugged his shoulders. On August 5th, 1989, Joe's grandmother Nancy passed away. And this kind of gets glossed over in the book. And I think it's a little bit more significant than maybe some people realized. After learning about his life, I think that his grandmother Nancy was one of the only people that was really always in his corner and supporting him. And the fact that she died just a little over a month before the shooting... I think it's significant. I, I think it um, may have had something to do with it. I think that may have been a part of what, what caused him to snap. Um, around that time, he started complaining to Dr. Coleman that he was having really bad memory problems and insomnia. And that's when Dr. Coleman suggested that he try the Prozac again. Now, Dr. Coleman testified that he was uncertain whether he warned Westbecker of the possibility of developing the manic or psychotic symptoms that had been experienced by some patients on the drug. In late August, Joe went over to James Lucas's house and he told James Lucas about his plan to, quote, eliminate that fucking place. Lucas testified that he told pressman Gerald Griffin about Joe's plan that very day, the day he told him. And he said that he told his supervisor the following day. He said he also told Grady Throneberry, head of security, on August 29th about Joe's plan. And Don McCall, the vice president. And like I've mentioned, McCall denies it. Um, Don McCall and Mike Shea deny having any knowledge of the plan. On September 5th, Westbecker had his second prescription of Prozac filled, and the following day, he called Danny's Gun Repair to have his AKs cleaned. 
and the salesman said that he was acting so strange that he wouldn't sell Joe any additional ammo. He was like, something's not right here. So on September 10th, Joe purchased 200 rounds of bullets from Ray's indoor shooting range. And that day, both McCall and Shay got anonymous phone calls, and the, the caller asked them both, quote, why the fuck are you sitting down? Which I, I kind of don't understand that, um, but we can assume that that was Joe Westbecker now. And on September 11th, three days before the shooting, we know that Westbecker went to see Dr. Coleman for the last time. And that was the time that he said, hey, let's, let's get you back off this drug and report back in a few weeks. So, now you have a better understanding of that, that last year leading up to the shooting. Let's talk about the trial. Among the jury of 16 were a chem lab tech, a teacher, a secretary, five retired women, two retired men, and a truck driver. One of the young male jurors was an avid gun enthusiast who allegedly owned every type of AK ever made. The front four rows in the courtroom were made up of the plaintiffs, survivors, and family members. The OJ trial was going on at the same time, and so there wasn't as much media coverage as there might have been otherwise, which is kind of interesting. So Paul Smith opened by talking about Westbecker's depression as a physical disorder of the brain, and Cornwall said he kind of got lost talking about biology and talking about science. Uh, but he pushed through it. He explained Prozac, he explained FDA approval, and he warned the jury that what Stouffer was going to do was not defend Prozac, but attack the patient, Joe Westbecker. And that's exactly what happened. Now, on October 3rd, Angela Bowman, now confined to a wheelchair, testified. And a juror later remembered that they were all holding back from crying and it was so moving that many of the jurors went to the bathroom after her testimony so that they could just let it out, let out the tears. Now, the following two days, Smith called nine more shooting victims to the stand. And according to Cornwell, the plaintiffs uh, were in really good shape after those, those first days. Um, they had done a really good job and things seemed to be going in favor of Paul Smith and his clients. Um, the next days, they heard from Westbecker's childhood friend, Officer Joe Ball. They heard from his mother, Martha, and his son, Kevin, and his first wife, Sue. On Monday, October 10th, the plaintiff's counsel went on the offense against Prozac and its manufacturer, and even the judge admitted that this day got really hard to follow. It was too much science. Even some of the attorneys clearly were not keeping up. Um... One thing that was revealed, though, basically it came out that um, Eli Lilly researchers had figured out that lower doses of the medication might be better to recommend to patients, but they hesitated to, to do that, to start recommending lower dosages, because they knew they wouldn't make as much money off of them, so they didn't do it. Um, so that, that made them look bad. Uh, but they talked to expert after expert, doctor after doctor, they nitpicked and repeated and unraveled every possible little detail you could think of regarding neuroscience and drugs and psychology and psychiatry. And then Dr. Coleman testified in the last week of October. 
and in the time between his sworn deposition, generally in favor of the plaintiffs, he had been talking with Eli Lilly lawyers and, quote, had undergone a significant change of heart. So basically, something really fishy was going on with Dr. Lee Coleman. Eli Lilly had essentially hired him without paying him yet. So what had happened was Dr. Coleman told Ed Stouffer that he didn't feel like he had enough information to say whether or not Prozac was to blame. And so he spent 20 or 30 hours reviewing material provided to him by Eli Lilly. And so Paul Smith was saying, wait a minute. He was supposed to be an independent witness, and now he's an expert witness, basically appearing on behalf of the defense. Because, you see, Lilly lawyers had also supplied Dr. Coleman with a highlighted chronology of Wes Becker's life. And he admitted that he was planning on charging the lawyers $200 an hour for the time he spent reviewing their material. And somehow Judge Potter decided that it didn't matter. They could proceed just the same. And Paul Smith was furious, and rightfully so, I think. So Dr. Coleman took the stand, and they talked about Wes Becker's history as his patient. And Smith brought up the fact that Wes Becker had told Coleman that taking the Prozac had helped him remember this incident of sexual abuse at work. And at the time, Dr. Coleman thought, you know, this Prozac is the probable cause of this false memory and general deterioration. Um, he thought, you know, this, this drug is probably making you think things happened that didn't really happen. Smith helped point out to the jury that good old Dr. Coleman had been keeping track of the amount of hours he'd spent reviewing Lily's material relating to the case, and that those materials were pre-highlighted, and that he expected to be compensated for some research he did for them as well. And so uh, that kind of helped, I think, make Dr. Coleman look a little unreliable. Um, So then Stouffer had to spend his cross-exam trying to make Dr. Coleman not look like the schmuck he was starting to look like. Um, And then again, after that, Lily went back to their strategy of trying to win by, quote, burying them under a mountain of information. So towards the end of the trial, things were still looking pretty good for the plaintiffs. Uh, Smith and Zettler had been successful in, quote, establishing at least the impression that Lily had cut corners in its testing and marketing of Prozac. But that still didn't exactly mean that they were knowingly and irresponsibly negligent, which is what they needed to, to be awarded damages. So before they wrapped up, they called up some employees of Standard Gravure who basically confirmed that working conditions were bad um, and that no one took seriously the reports of threats made by Joe Westbecker. And Stouffer wanted to make sure that he put that nail in the Standard Gravure coffin best he could before they finished. He had to shift that blame, right? So, so they didn't take these threats seriously. That's totally on them. And then uh, James... Joe's son testified, and he told the jury that in the final days of Joe's life, after taking the Prozac, he, quote, wasn't really the same person. He said that he'd just been altered drastically. Now, plot twist. On December 7th, 1994, 
lawyers from both sides met in the judge's chambers, and Judge Potter had decided to allow the plaintiffs to provide documents that would tell the incredibly damaging story of the Oriflex debacle to the jury. Now, if you'll remember in part two, we talked about the Oriflex uh, situation where they had they were aware of all these side effects and they didn't report them to the FDA. And Stouffer and Eli Lilly knew that might be the kiss of death for their case. And so a few hours later, there was some buzz in the courtroom um, and people started whispering the S word, settlement. And so the next day, Paul Smith came in again and he was like, okay, listen here, judge. The plaintiffs have decided they're not going to go down that Oriflex Avenue. Um, they're, they're just not interested in pursuing that bit of evidence. So six months later, it was revealed that the two parties had made a, quote, strictly secret deal, arguably unprecedented in any Western court. The plaintiffs had agreed not to bring in the Oriflex evidence in exchange for, quote, substantial sums of money awarded to each of the plaintiffs. And apparently the judge knew nothing about this. They'd also agreed that neither party would appeal, nor would go to a punitive damages phase of the litigation, and the payments would be paid in three parts over three years. And if any party divulged the details of the agreement, they'd automatically forfeit payment. You see, Prozac knew that the Oriflex stuff would be so damaging, far beyond just the Louisville trial. Uh, To this day, we still don't know exactly why the plaintiffs decided not to go ahead with the evidence. Um, Probably they just didn't want to gamble with the possibility of losing and and getting nothing. Or they were maybe just mentally worn out and and didn't want to think about it or deal with it anymore. Bottom line, as John, John Cornwell puts it, quote, Both sides had much to win by coming to this secret arrangement. Both sides came to it because they had too much to lose. This was a secret agreement out of court, and so they still had to finish the trial. So they went in and they made their closing arguments. Um, and what I gathered here is that Stouffer was collected and eloquent and kind of knocked it out of the park, while Paul Smith had actually been really sick with pneumonia, and he pretty much bombed his closing argument, from what I hear. So um, the jurors took a preliminary vote, and the result was four in favor of the plaintiffs, three in favor of Lily, and five undecided. And this is kind of crazy. Over the weekend, one of the jurors had a stroke, and she was replaced by a woman who was in favor of Eli Lilly, and so the vote was reversed. Four in favor of Lilly, five undecided. And what they would do is they would stop and discuss for 45 minutes, and then they'd vote, and then they'd discuss for 45 minutes, vote again. And then one of the jurors was out in the hallway, like walking to the bathroom or something, and happened to overhear two lawyers from the two different parties talking about that secret settlement. And so she went in to talk to the judge, super confused, and Judge Potter, who we believe had no knowledge of this settlement, assured her that that nothing was going on like that. And 
So that was kind of wild. And then Paul Smith is, was sure that the jury foreman, Mr. Holliford, was taking the jurors aside one by one and explaining to them that the judge was obviously nudging them to find Wes Becker alone at fault. And so at 2 o'clock that afternoon, uh, Monday, I believe, they took a weekend, um, there was word that they had reached a verdict. And so Foreman Holliford announced to the courtroom that the jury had determined that Wes Becker and Wes Becker alone was responsible for the shootings on September 14, 1989. And people were stunned. There was this brief moment of absolute silence and then just sobs, hysterical sobs from the plaintiffs. So the jurors were escorted back to the jury room for counseling and debriefing. They didn't talk to reporters immediately. Neither did the plaintiffs. Everything was kind of quiet. And of course, lawyers on both sides denied that there had been any kind of settlement out of court. So that evening, John Cornwell spoke with one of the plaintiffs, Michael Campbell, on the phone. We've, we, I've mentioned him before. He was the, one of the ones that was always more willing to talk to the press and, and the public. And so here's what he told Cornwell. Quote, It's not so much about the money, although it would have been useful. It's the certainty we all have, those of us who knew Wes Becker well, that it was this drug that made him do it that more people will have to suffer until a case is proved against Eli Lilly. So that's what Campbell said that day. And then something kind of strange happened. Cornwell went to visit Campbell a while after the trial had ended, and he got this totally different story about Wes Becker. Uh, So Campbell told Cornwell that, yes, people were hard on Wes Becker, but he was just as bad as everyone else. He said, quote, he knew how to needle people. He was kind of offbeat. But, you know, as he got more ill, his humor failed him and he couldn't take it. Nothing was funny to him anymore. He got very rigid. He wouldn't talk anymore. And then he said, quote, my opinion of Wes Becker is that he was very cunning. We knew he had stock and was obsessed with money. We used to bug him and ask him about his profits. Then one day, he lost his temper when we were ribbing him, and it came out. He said he was planning all along to con the doctors so they would let him out on disability. He had it all figured. He was using everything to his own advantage. And so Cornwell, in response, asked Campbell what happened. What went wrong with his plan? How did it end this way? And so Campbell said, quote, he lost control. He really was mentally sick, and it all slipped through his fingers. And there was another thing. He could have had a physical disability, but he was proud. He wanted to keep this macho Rambo image of himself. That's how he wanted to go out. So eventually Judge Potter realized when the plaintiffs didn't appeal uh, that they had probably accepted a secret deal, and he was not happy about that. He didn't like that going down in his courtroom. So he tried to go to the Court of Appeals and have it changed to say that the case was settled rather than dismissed, which totally freaked out Eli Lilly and the plaintiffs because they wouldn't get their payments and Lilly would have a huge PR nightmare on their hands. And so all of a sudden it became Eli Lilly and the plaintiffs versus Judge Potter, which is such a weird dynamic change. Um, 
But the Court of Appeals ruled that he couldn't alter his ruling. And so things went on quietly for a while until July when one of the plaintiffs, Andrew Pointer, went and got a divorce. And this was a problem because he would have to reveal all of his earnings in the divorce proceedings. Earnings which included the payouts from Eli Lilly. And so then it was made public. They, he was getting this three-stage payment. We never learned the amount, as far as I know, but it was confirmed that they were getting paid. And so that, that was kind of a debacle in its own right. Um, but as for Paul Smith, uh, he planned to, he said he planned to go on to continue fighting for plaintiffs in Prozac cases. But that same year, in 1995, after just a few more cases, he announced he wasn't going after Prozac anymore. And the rumor was uh, he'd done really well for himself by then. He didn't need to do any more Prozac cases because he had probably quietly settled all of the ones he was involved with out of court. And so former clients started to indicate they might pursue, pursue legal action against him for having betrayed their interests. So that's the story of Joseph Westbecker and the Standard Gravure shooting. 20 shot, 8 dead, and 2019 was the 30-year anniversary of this shooting. And so um, Wave 3 and WHAS 11 did some follow-up stories. And if you search this case, those are probably the videos that will pop up first. And so I learned a couple things um, from these stories that, that weren't in the book. Um, and also, I hadn't seen the videos before, and the videos really um, shed a new light on this and make you understand how shocking it was to the city of Louisville. Um, like I said, this this decade, these violent militaristic shootings were still brand new to us, and especially to happen in little old Louisville, it was just um, really crazy. And so... Um, it was chaos in downtown Louisville for anyone nearby because you don't know how many shooters there are. You don't know what this guy's plan is. Um, and so they interview um, they interview Gordon Scherer and Mike Campbell. And Mike Campbell talks about how scary it was. He'd already been shot and he's laying there and it's so eerily quiet. And I think... Like, you expect it to just be, like, loud chaos, right? And it really wasn't. Um, maybe because some people were trying to play dead, um, but mostly just because everyone was so shocked. Now, one of the most alarming things um, from this update, uh, they tell this story about one of the men in the press room, Kevin Fentress, um, and they could hear some like faint noises that kind of sounded like gunshots, you know? And someone that was in there with him said he, Fentress jokingly remarked that it was probably Joseph Westbecker, quote, coming to finish everyone off. And then just a few moments later, Westbecker entered the room and started shooting and he killed Kevin Fentress. And if that doesn't give you full body chills, I don't know what will. Um, one of the other things that this news story mentioned that I didn't quite get before 
There were between 12 and 15 documented suicide attempts made by Wes Becker. That's a lot. And I'm just saying that because there were so many red flags, so many cries for help, so many warnings, both from Wes Becker himself and from others, and no one took it seriously. They even found a calendar of public shootings in Wes Becker's house that had highlighted all the ones that took place in the previous two years. So yeah, he'd probably been planning this for a long time. Um, and yeah, you, it, it's his fault, right? But man, we do a little bit better job now, I think, as a, as a community of taking these warning signs seriously, but man, we can still, we can learn a lot of lessons from this case. Um, in the 2019 story, Dr. Lee Coleman did not return Wave 3's calls for him to make a comment. And one final uh, bit of information, the printing company, that, that building is not there anymore. It was demolished and it's the site of a parking lot now. And uh, I think most of the people who were there that day are grateful that it's gone. Thanks for hanging in there for all three parts of this story. It ended up being like two hours of recording, which takes, you know, like four hours to mess with. So um, I got really invested in this case and um, it's good. It's good to know that this happened. It's a, it was a big part of my hometown's history and it happened uh, just a little, a little bit, a few years before I was born. So I just missed it. Um, and it, it's just so tragic that a person could give that many cries for help and um, that many warnings and not be taken seriously. So, yeah. Um, if, if you were alive when this happened and you remember this event, I'd like to hear about your experience. You can send me a message via social media or you can send an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Uh, don't forget to check out the website, kyhistoryhaunts.com, where I'll have more photos to go along with all of the stories and additional resources if you want to do a little more exploring on your own. Thank you all for listening. Happy fall, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>